This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The world is watching China closely right now. The efforts to transition to a more consumer-led economic model have profound implications for commodity exporters, its fellow emerging markets, and the United States, and we're already seeing an impact on each one of those fronts. I'm joined today by Tim Mo, Goldman Sachs co-head of macro research in Asia, who's here to discuss China's current state and where it could be headed. Tim, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. Tim, let's start with China. The growth story over the last 25 years has been nothing short of remarkable, but this year has been a tough one. It's been an anxious one. We've seen multiple currency devaluations in a plunging stock market after a big run-up. That slowdown comes within a challenging third quarter for the region as a whole, with the Asia-Pacific ex-Japan Regional Index falling nearly 20% in the third quarter. Tim, where do you see China's markets headed for the rest of this year, given that backdrop? In a word, we think we can see a rally in the fourth quarter. The logic for this carries from the essence of your question, which is that we saw markets in general, and China specifically, come down close to 20% in the third quarter. To contextualize that, that was the worst quarter we've seen in the Asia X Japan region since the third quarter of 2011, when things came down 21%, which in turn was the worst since the global financial crisis, when the overall market over a longer period of time fell 60 plus percent. So the setup here is we've had markets sell off aggressively. And as a consequence of that, they've come down to valuation levels that are close to what we call major correction lows. In a nutshell, we've looked at all the times the regional index has fallen more than 10% over the last 25 years and grouped those into three buckets, what we call minor, major, and systemic corrections. Major corrections are when the market falls between 20 and 40%. And we've looked at what the average valuations are at the lows, at the bottom there. And the current valuation for the region and for China is pretty much consistent with those major correction lows. So unless you think we're going into a systemic crisis, like another Asian financial crisis or global financial crisis, the market's priced in a lot of bad news. And on top of that, we've seen the biggest amount of foreign investor selling since the global financial crisis. To be specific, since end of April until the bottom in September, $26 billion net was sold out of Asian markets, where we have the data, and that's the most, as I said, since the global financial crisis. So the context here is you've had markets down a lot, valuations down a lot, investors sold a lot. And then you've got a couple of catalysts coming up, which we think can get markets bouncing back up. What are they? Two things related to China, since China's at the epicenter of why markets fell in the first place. Catalyst number one is the macro data is going to get better. And we say this with a high degree of confidence because there are a lot of reasons in the third quarter when China's growth was suppressed that were temporary in nature. Just one or two are that they shut down seven provinces around Beijing to clear the air for the athletic games in August. And then you had an explosion in the Tianjin port, which curtailed trade for a week or so. So that stuff rolls off. It's not going to, they've started up the factories, the port's running again. So you get an immediate bump in the data. So number one, as we see the data improving, we think the market's kind of confidence that China's not going off the edge of a cliff and that the economy is actually stabilizing and improving. Number two, the news flow is going to get better. And just to cite one example, we have the fifth party plenum coming up on October 26th to 29th, and that's where the 13th five-year plan will be enumerated, more details on reform. We also have a variety of other issues and catalysts coming up in November, December. So you put all these things together, it's a pretty good argument for why markets can bounce into the end of the year. 
So longer term, the uncertainty out of China comes amidst this pretty dramatic transition the government's trying to engineer to lead to a more consumer-driven economic model. Why has China made that such a big priority, and what does that mean for their markets over the more medium and long term? This is really the longer and the bigger and key dynamic that China's going through, which is a transition from a more externally-led and investment-led economic model to one that needs to become more domestically driven and more consumer driven. There are many reasons for that, but they have to do with China's changing export competitiveness, with the increasingly capital intensive nature of the business model that they have had, which has led to a significant debt buildup, and the need to develop the domestic economy in an economy which is now the second largest globally. China's a big story beyond Asia itself. The presidential candidates here in the United States are all talking about it. And markets worldwide have really zeroed in on China in the past several months, particularly, and really following everything that's happening there. When you talk to clients outside of China, what are their biggest concerns? Well, we need a long list. Yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. I'd say the, the issues are related to the extent to which China's economy is vulnerable to a significant slowdown. There's a loud chorus of very negative observers who are citing appropriately China's significant debt buildup, which I mentioned. And to contextualize that, China's debt to GDP was about 150 percent aggregate debt for about five or six years, nice and steady between 2004 and 2009. In 2009, when the economy was slowing post the global financial crisis, there was a very significant infrastructure investment program, fiscal stimulus, and that took debt to GDP in a very rapid measure up to about 250% where it is today. So there are concerns that there's been an over-rapid leveraging of the economy, particularly for its state of development, and that that will carry with it the seeds of an unwind, which could, in the extreme, result in banking sector stress, systemic stress, and therefore sharp slowdown in China's economy, which would have ripple effect consequences to the rest of the world. And explain the ripple effects, because for all the talk about China, America doesn't export a lot there. It exports mm. more than it used to. We import quite a bit. But why are American companies so focused on the growth trajectory in China, given still the somewhat strong ties, but it's not a dominant factor. The U.S. economy is largely consumption-led. Sure. I think a certain amount of it is that China has represented an opportunity for people to be a new, very large domestic market for companies here to penetrate. So that is one source of opportunity, and if that growth potential slows down, then obviously there are some consequences. There also are a lot of other linkages that China has with the rest of the world, and one of the topical ones, of course, is through the commodity space. So there's lots of focus in terms of China's demand for commodities. It depends on which commodity you look at, but in round numbers, China is accounting for, in many cases, 50% or more of the demand for a particular commodity globally. So when prices... And the last buyer sets the price. Indeed. And yeah. so when you have commodity prices falling as rapidly as they've done recently, the signal effect that's being extracted from those weak commodity prices is mapped onto a view that China demand is falling very rapidly. Now, as our commodity team here has been at pains to note, we think that's actually a slight misinterpretation of the signal. In other words, there's a big 
oversupply effect. It's not just a China demand effect, but there is some China demand aspect to that. Indeed, we have an index which shows China's materials consumption, which is down at very, very low levels, pretty much constant with where they were in the global financial crisis. So that part of China is indeed slowing down rapidly, and that is causing concerns, more generalized growth concerns globally. So there have historically been a lot of misperceptions around China and how, how the economy works, how the political system works. What do you think the biggest misperceptions people have today outside of China? And what do you actually see happening on the ground there that's very different? I'd say from the conversations that we have with investors that there is still some misreading and misunderstanding of what the policy objectives are in China and also some misgivings about the effectiveness with which policy can be implemented. And to be a bit more precise, what we're referring to here is the intention to transition the economy, as we were mentioning earlier, from this external and investment-led model to this more domestic demand-led model. Now, to do that, there are a variety of sub-objectives which need to be achieved, and those can be broadly categorized into the fiscal reform area, financial reform, legal and administrative and anti-corruption reform, social reform, and reform of the state-owned enterprises. And so there's a fair amount of debate, discussion, and disbelief in terms of how effective China's reforms are going to be able to be and how well-intentioned the current policymakers are in terms of proceeding with those reforms. And particularly the liberalizing of the financial sector, they liberalized to some extent the equity markets recently and tried to open up more equity flow between Hong Kong investors and the domestic markets. Then they seemed to pull back on that rapidly when the markets became very volatile. How do you see that playing out? I think we need to categorize things into a longer-term and a shorter-term set of factors or buckets. Longer-term, it's our very strong belief from multiple interactions with policymakers that the compass direction, so to speak, the true north that they're aiming at, is opening reform and development of the capital markets. Because there's a clear understanding with lots of external historical precedent that having a well-functioning capital market system is conducive to economic growth and that China needs to transition from a purely bank-centered finance model to one that has a broad and well-functioning set of capital markets. That lesson is very clear. And a well-functioning equity market that has a variety of different players, not just retail investors who tend to tip the boat from one side to the other when they get more or less bullish or bearish, and one that's balanced by institutional investors that's deep and liquid and therefore serves as a medium for raising primary finance. The benefits of that are not lost on policymakers at all. And so that is indeed the intention of developing and opening the equity market. And indeed, a similar argument can be made, perhaps even more strongly, for the bond market. Now, in the shorter term, what happened over the summer, of course, is that there were in our view, some policy mistakes that were made. In other words, there was probably some, with the benefit of hindsight, excessive, what you might call cheerleading of the market up. In an effort to promote a good and developing equity culture, the authorities probably gave the impression that there was free money. In other words, the market's just going to go up, and there was a sort of a Beijing put, as you might call it. And so people rushed in, and of course, speculation built, leverage increased, and that led to a very significant rally in the market on leverage to unsustainable levels. And then when the authorities came in and said, well, hold on a minute, let's curtail some of this margin financing, particularly non-sanctioned, non-brokerage margin financing, then there was a deleveraging 
sell off, which intensified. Yeah. And then when that happened, of course, there was a need to stem what could have been a, or what was a developing uh, self-fueling downward spiral, and that was the intervention which took place, which I think, again, with the benefit of hindsight, appeared somewhat more clumsy than the way in which they've implemented policy in the real economy. So in the short term, there were clearly miscalculations that took place, but the longer-term objective is one of developing a larger, more liquid, and more balanced equity market. Let's switch gears a little bit to talk about emerging markets more broadly. Many have been hit hard recently by the drop in commodity prices, which you talked about, and the prospect of a Fed interest rate hike. Are we entering a new phase in the growth story around emerging markets? There is a transition which is taking place here, and in fact, we've written a piece on this. My colleague Peter Oppenheimer just did a global strategy paper called The Third Wave, where we've contextualized the global financial crisis as having three episodes or three waves. The first one centered in the U.S., uh, the second one rotating into Europe, and the third one in the emerging markets, uh, very much uh, linked to the change in commodity prices. So there has been a significant paradigmatic shift as our commodity strategists have articulated from what you might call a commodity supercycle, which characterized or was present in much of the, the noughties, the 2000s. And that has clearly shifted now for a variety of reasons, but most significantly the innovation of shale energy here in the United States, which has completely shifted the demand supply for oil. In addition, because of the very significant price increases that many commodity companies, producers enjoyed, there was a development, as typically happens, of overcapacity, which we're now beginning to work off. So as I said earlier, we have a situation where commodity prices are falling because of excess supply mainly, but that's being exacerbated by some weakness in the growth dynamics of the global economy, most notably, as we just said, in China. So the combination of those two factors means that we think we have an environment of lower for longer commodity prices, broadly speaking. And that, in turn, is hitting many emerging market economies who tend to be very commodity intensive. And when you have significant terms of trade shocks, when your, in many cases, your primary export comes down, then the primary adjustment mechanism for that, for both the internal and external balances which develop, is the currency. So we've seen weakness in currencies, and that's been spreading around, and there's been a contagion effect, even into the currencies of economies who are beneficiaries of low commodity prices, like, for example, India or Korea. So I think that's one of the dynamics which has changed and which we think will continue to be a feature of the investment environment going into 2016. One bright spot in the emerging markets has been India, and investors seem to be heartened by the prospect for really serious policy reforms. What's your read on India's progress and as an opportunity for equity investors? Well, to set the baseline, we've been positive in India for a while. We've been overweight that in our regional portfolio, and happily so. Now, I think the mark-to-market on this is that there was a great deal of optimism and expectation when the Modi government came into play, and there were lots of very well-intentioned reforms, both very large ones as well as many more micro ones, that were discussed and intended to be implemented. Fast forward till today, which is in round numbers about a year after the BJP has assumed dominance, there is clearly a checkered report card on the efficacy of reform. And the simple way of characterizing it is that there's been a shortfall on the big headline-grabbing reforms, like a goods and services tax or land acquisition, 
But under the surface, and this is perhaps unbeknownst to many investors or those who at least don't cover the market or follow it to any degree of specificity, there's been a lot of progress just in the ease of doing business. A lot of red tape has been rolled back. It's just easier to get stuff done in India now than it was before. And indeed, that's one of the core drivers that gives us optimism for the fundamental economic outlook over the intermediate term. So our bottom line in India is we think it's one of the best growth stories in the emerging market domain. There is a great demographic story. There's a lot of unrealized potential energy, which if the reforms continue to take place, can then become kinetic energy as opposed to potential energy, so to speak. And that in turn can trickle down to corporate profits and give you a good stock market story. The challenge right now is that the market has discounted a fair amount of that good news, which has yet to manifest, and investors are well positioned there. So in the short term, it's well-owned and a bit expensive, but the longer-term strategic story is really good. So our sense is you want to lower your expectations in the near term, but you definitely want to be leaning long in India because we think the story there is one of dynamic growth, and it's one of the most exciting ones around. How about the rest of Asia beyond uh, China and India? Where are the biggest changes in your outlook heading into uh, 2016? I'd say we've tempered our view in general, and that's a function of a variety of what we're calling strategic headwinds, which, just to pick a couple out, are some changing dynamics on the trade front, where, in a nutshell, many parts of Asia have been losing market share into the G3, the US, Europe, and Japan, as well as changing dynamics in terms of how easy it has been for Asian exporters to penetrate the domestic market in China itself. In other words, the rise of a lot of domestic Chinese competitors. I'll give you one great statistic, which is that in 2011, the share of the local smartphone market was held 18% by domestic Chinese manufacturers and 18% by Korean manufacturers. Fast forward till today, the domestic China manufacturers have 66% of the market in just four years, 18 to 66, and the Koreans have fallen from 18 to 8. So it's gotten a lot more competitive in China, <laughs> clearly. And I can cite, there's a bunch of other industries we can cite to uh, further exemplify that point. So trade's getting more competitive. As I mentioned earlier, the credit cycle, it's not just China, but elsewhere in Asia, it's had a good credit party. And there's some other issues as well, policies, what I've mentioned, commodity prices, and then there's the impact of technology and competition. So I think the environment in which companies are functioning, which therefore enables them to generate profits, the winds are blowing a bit tougher right now. So our focus is on the more specific parts of the region that have better growth opportunities. It's more of an alpha as opposed to beta story in the near term, we think. As the trade picture has gotten more competitive in Asia, a lot of these countries have put in place, beyond China, strategies to diversify away from export-led growth. How successful has that been? Mildly. And it depends on the specific countries. So some areas have naturally a better domestic demand story. We've just mentioned India as one example. Indonesia and the Philippines are two others that come to mind. A great domestic demographic story, India, Indonesia, excuse me, in round numbers, 250 million people. The classic emerging market, rising middle class story. People get an income above, say, 4,000 U.S. dollars, and all of a sudden, everyone wants to buy a car, refrigerator, house, fancier clothes, etc. And so there's a great domestic demand story that is going to be present for a long time, and indeed, we think will drive well over 6% growth on average. Philippines, close to 100 million people, same dynamic going on. 
and also without the near-term encumbrance of an excessive credit buildup. In contrast to that, Korea, for example, has a significant demographic problem, in many ways worse than Japan. Japan's well known for an aging population, but Korea's birth rate is actually lower and there are greater concerns about the demographic profile for Korea. So there's a need for Korea to do even more rapid increase in terms of the value add of what it's producing, be more innovative on the export side, and really find new sources of growth which aren't going to be naturally supplied by a young and dynamic and growing population. Tim, on the trade front, the U.S. just concluded a major trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with many Asian countries. Who might be the big winners from that over the medium and long term? If I had to single one country out that comes to mind, it's Vietnam. And the reason for doing so is that we did a piece about just a few months ago on Thailand, and one of the comparisons we looked at was the share of the different ASEAN economies. And we looked at the share that they have into the G3 in terms of of what proportion of the G3's imports, G3, of course, U.S., Europe, and Japan, are accounted for by exports in that particular country. And if you look at the time series and take Thailand as a case in point, they've been losing market share, particularly in the last couple of years. A number of reasons for that, but that's the fact. The interesting point is if you look at Vietnam, which was nowhere on the radar screen two, three, four years ago, just surpassed Thailand in terms of the import market share into the G3. And that is significantly because there's competitive advantage, low factor costs, and, and so forth, and Vietnam has been opening up. And they've successfully done the fast follower game, so to speak, of making the transition to the newest product line, which in this case is smartphones as opposed to Thailand's erstwhile prominent position in the PC supply chain. So Thailand was very incremental, still is, in terms of hard disk drives, but who uses hard disk drives these days? Whereas Samsung's largest mobile phone factory globally is in Vietnam. So you've had a hockey stick in terms of Vietnam's penetration into the G3, and that would only be improved by the innovation of the TPP where probably more investment's going to come in from, say, Taiwan or Korea into Vietnam, and you already have the beginnings of the infrastructure and logistics in Vietnam that are going to grow to scale and probably increase the process I just described. You talked a little bit about the debt buildup in China and some of the other ASEAN countries. What are the real risks to that debt buildup? The risks are how it unwinds. So we've reached in many places a level where... It's not axiomatic, it can't go higher, but we're getting into a zone where some red lights are flashing relative to historical norms and relative to sustainability of carrying that debt and and various other metrics. So the bigger picture is that in the last five years, really since the formal end of the global financial crisis, when we had a surfeit of US dollar liquidity globally because of quantitative easing and so forth, that that generally facilitated easier monetary policy and more borrowing, more gearing up in a number of countries, not just China, but also many parts of ASEAN and parts of the consumer sector, Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, and so forth. And that's at levels that central banks are becoming, and policymakers are becoming discomforted by. So the prospect is one where the tailwind for growth and for company profits and so forth of increasing leverage is at best becoming neutral and may indeed become a headwind. Now, the severity of that headwind will be a function of whether monetary policy tightens a lot 
whether growth slows down and whether there's stress on companies. But one of the things we're actively looking at is so-called left-tailed risk, how many companies are having problems servicing their debt. That's a metric that we're looking at actively and we think bears monitoring going forward. Tim, let's close with China. And big picture question, how do you see this story there, the economic story playing out over the next five years? Over the next five years, we're still constructive. Bigger picture, and Andrew Tilton, our chief Asian economist, has coined a good term. We call it bumpy deceleration. So China's economy will slow. And that's in part just the law of large numbers. It's the world's number two economy. We're well over $10 trillion of GDP. And it's just hard to keep growing at those 8% rates, 9-10% rates that we did a decade ago when the economy was less than half the size. So that's not a surprise. And that's been in our numbers for a long, long time. Now, the slowdown is likely to be more rapid now than we were thinking maybe two, three, four years ago, partly because of the debt issues that we've just described. So the drama that's going to be played out over the next five years is how effective China policymakers are going to be in carrying out the various reform measures that we quickly discussed previously. If they do that, we think that that's a very good roadmap for putting the economy on a sound footing toward much more stable growth and a better quality of growth and one that's going to be more sustainable. And the challenge is how do you navigate the accumulated stresses that built up over the last number of years, including pollution, excess capacity, over leverage, et cetera. The future is not written in stone. So what we have to do as investors is every day wake up, monitor the numbers, look at the data, look at the objective evidence, and say, are they making progress in the right direction or are there challenges to that? And then recalibrate our view as we go forward. But I think the longer term outlook here is one that you've got to give the benefit of the doubt to the policymakers in terms of the plan they have, the resources they have to affect it, and the will that they have to drive forward on this. And that should lead them to a much better place in five years' time. Tim, thank you very much for that tour of the region. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on October 14, 2015. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.